Titus chapter 1. Titus is an epistle that is all about, through all three chapters, the consummation of hope. This book of Titus is a short letter written from Paul to one of his co-workers in the faith. Paul had a common practice when he would go into a new region, a new city, a new area, is that he would preach the gospel, he would proclaim the good news of Jesus, and he would leave one of his co-workers there to continue to establish the churches and to disciple those new believers. This is exactly what the book of Titus is about. The apostle Paul traveled, traveled to the island of Crete, and there he preached the good news of the gospel. People came to faith in Jesus. Now, this island of Crete Uh, It's about 200 miles south of the Greek capital city of Athens, as you look at it on a map. This island of Crete was particularly known as a place that was rife with immorality. The name Crete actually means fleshy. In fact, the first century B.C., Roman lawyer and statesman Cicero had this to say about the inhabitants of Crete. He said, quote, The rules of life are so contradictory that the Cretans regard robbery as honorable. In fact, Paul himself, in verse 12, if you have your Bible open, of this book, he quotes a Cretan prophet. He says this, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds his commentary. This testimony is true. In other words, I've been there, I've seen it, I can attest to the fact Cretans are If you've ever been called a Cretan, it's not a term of endearment. Yet this is where Paul had taken the gospel. This is where he had seen people come to true faith in Jesus Christ. And this is where he had planted churches. But it's clear from the full context of this letter that there were some false teachers who had come into the local churches and who were teaching and preaching such things that, yes, you can have a profession of faith in Jesus, you can believe in Jesus, but you can still live in this immoral, ungodly, Cretan way. And Paul is writing to correct them. He's writing to tell them, no, listen, you cannot. If you are truly born again, your life should come in sync with that profession of faith. You should not live as a Cretan. That's incompatible with the gospel. Friends, the same is true today. If there are people who have some intellectual assent to the claims of Jesus, even maybe give a profession of their belief, even warm feelings about Jesus, but yet they live in an ungodly way, friends, it is inconsistent. It is incompatible. And that doesn't just include the big, glaring, obvious, really bad sins. It includes all of our actions and our attitudes, how we relate to other people, how we engage with those even who are opposed to the gospel. In fact, I want you to notice the things that Paul listed at the beginning of chapter 3 in this book. These are the actions and the attitudes he said are consistent with a genuine profession of faith in Christ. He says to Titus, remind them, the Cretan Christians, remind them to one, be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Would you agree with me that these attitudes and these actions 
are sorely missed even in Christ's church today? And Paul doesn't say, well, there's qualifications for these instructions. He doesn't make any exceptions to these commands. In fact, just the opposite. He uses comprehensive language. Every good work. Speak evil of no one. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. All people? Yes. All people. These are comprehensive. No exclusions. No qualifications. No exceptions. No contingencies. This is the way Christian people ought to live their lives. So the big question is, how? How do we live like this? How do we get here? How do we grow and mature in our discipleship where these two verses are an accurate description of the way we live our lives in, quite frankly, a morally bankrupt place like Crete or like Chattanooga? One word. I hope you know what the word is. Hope. How do we live like this? Where are you placing your hope? Throughout the three chapters of the book of Titus, Paul brings our focus back to this consummation of hope, the conclusion, the finality, the fulfillment of our hope in Jesus. And friends, that hope should shape our lives. It should shape the outlook we have in life. And it should, yes, shape the way we interact and we engage with others, even those who we might consider to be difficult. We're going to look at the introduction of the letter the first four verses of chapter 1. And these four verses really serve as something of an outline for the entire book of Titus. They're really the whole book in microcosm here in these four verses. So look with me in your Bible, the Bible study outline, as I read the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In hope... Of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, these four verses are literally dripping with the hope we are to have in God. And Paul starts off this letter like he starts almost all of his letters, and that is by introducing himself. He introduces himself as the author, and he really uses two words to describe himself. One is a word of humility. The other is a word of authority. The word of humility he uses is he says, I am a, quote, servant of God. That word there for servant is the Greek word doulos. It's used 128 times in our New Testaments. It literally means a slave or a bond slave. One who has been captured is the verb form, who has been ensnared. He's been ensnared. He's been captured by God. A slave is someone we know who has no longer has control of his own personal rights, but he's literally given those rights away. His liberties and his freedoms are been given over to another. We're so used to proclaiming our freedoms. We're so used to standing up for our rights. Paul says, I am a doulos of God. I'm a servant of God. I'm a slave of God. In fact, in other places in the New Testament, he says he's not only a servant, a slave, a doulos of God, but he's a doulos of the church. He's given away his rights. He's given away his liberties and his freedoms to others. What a novel idea. What a novel concept. 
to consider others as more important than yourself. But then not only does he use a term of humility to describe himself, he uses a term of authority. He describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a very limited fraternity. This is a group of individuals that were personally called and personally commissioned by Jesus Christ for the establishment of the church. Paul, as one untimely born, was an apostle. He was personally called and he was personally commissioned. As such, the words he writes, the words we have recorded here, they are the word of God because they bear this apostolic authority as God's divinely chosen vessel. Well, this is his identity. He establishes his identity, which involves both his humility and also his authority. And then he gets into the great theme of this letter, namely the consummation of hope, the conclusion, the, f- the fulfillment of all of our hopes as believers in Jesus Christ. And there are three things I want us to consider from these four verses and really the whole of the letter to Titus regarding this hope. First of all, I want you to see this. Our hope is rooted in the past. Our hope as believers in Christ is rooted in the past. This hope that changes our outlook, that shapes our lives, that we can live godly through the changing seasons of culture. culture, And not just any past, but the past. As far past as you can get. Friends, our hope as Christians isn't just go back to when we were converted to faith in Christ. For me, that was 40 years ago, almost. Uh, This past where we have hope is not even back to 1776 when this nation was founded. It doesn't go back to 1517 whenever the Reformation was launched through the Reformers. It doesn't even go back to the time and the work of Jesus. Our hope is rooted before anything was anything. Our hope for the future is rooted in the deep past. The only reason we have any hope of eternity is because there's a promise in eternity past. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Two distinct ways he describes, first of all, we have a hope rooted in eternity past because of the choosing of God. The choosing of God. Paul identifies the beneficiaries of his apostolic work and the work to which he's been called. He says his ministry is, quote, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. I want you to circle those two words, God's elect. This is a very common phrase, common theme in Paul's writing in the New Testament, really the whole of the Bible. The children of God, Old Testament and New Testament alike, the people of God, the redeemed through the ages are often referred to as God's elect, the chosen. And that's exactly what this word elect means. It means to pick out, to choose the verb form. God chose his people. On seven different occasions in the gospel accounts, Jesus himself refers to his disciples, refers to his followers as the chosen, the elect. And there's probably not a clearer passage in all the New Testament that portrays this truth Uh, particularly in chronological language, like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Notice what the Bible says there. Even as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Do you see the chronological language there? Before 
the foundation of the world. There was the electing love of God. Before he predestined us, the reason we have hope in eternity future is because we have the choosing love of God in eternity past. In fact, think of it like this. Think of it as the superhighway of the mercy of God. We know, we're familiar with highways around here. Interstate 24 comes right through our small community. Where does Interstate 24 begin? It begins in East Ridge, Tennessee, of all places, right? Where 75 and 24 intersect, where they just did all this renovation, which hopefully is going to alleviate some traffic issues in our city. Yeah, wishful thinking, right? That's where 24 begins. Where does it go? Well, it goes through Chattanooga, dips down into Georgia, heads northwest through our state of Tennessee, then it eventually goes all the way through the state of Kentucky, and it terminates in Illinois, of all places. That's Interstate 24. What about the superhighway of God's mercy? Where did it begin? Friend, it began all the way back in the mind and the heart of God before anything was anything. Before there was ever any created matter. Before even time existed, the love of God and the mercy of God, the superhighway of God's salvation goes all the way back to eternity past. And where does this superhighway end? Where does it terminate? It never ends. It goes all the way into eternity future. The mercy of God goes on forever. This is God's salvation. And so we see this chronological language here used with regard to the choosing of God. But not only that, with regard to the character of God. Paul describes God's character like this. God who never lies promised before the ages began. See that chronological language? But do you see the character of God described there? God who never lies. God is the God of truth. This aspect of God's character is also all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike. The only thing that emanates from God is truth. God is the God of truth. His word is the word of truth. And the God of truth always tells the truth. God never lies. And he has given his children, the elect of God, a promise. And God always fulfills his promises. Isn't that wonderful? God always fulfills his promises. What was the promise? Notice this again, chronological language. Before, he promised this, before the ages began. Listen carefully. Here's the promise. It's the covenant of redemption. You want to write those words down somewhere. The covenant of redemption. Before creation, before the ages began, before this linear chronological thing we understand as time and space was ever a thing, God made a covenant of redemption. In fact, notice how Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 puts it. This is the benediction to the book of Hebrews. The author writes, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, how long? Forever and ever. The Bible describes the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross 
at a point in human history, at a point in time and space chronologically, 33 roughly A.D., he describes that as the eternal covenant. It's been going on forever and ever. This is an agreement that was met, that was made before anything was anything. You've got to have your thinking caps on to try to conceive of this reality. Now, who did God the Father make this covenant with? Before anything was anything. Who did God the Father make this promise to? That's what a covenant is, right? It's an agreement between individuals. It's a promise. Before anything was anything, there was the perfect union, fellowship, and love of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony and unity. And God the Father said, I'm making a covenant with God the Son. And here's the promise I'm making to you, my Son, Jesus. Before anything was anything, I'm going to give a gift to my Son. And the gift the Father is giving to the Son is redeemed sinners throughout human history. The gift the Father is giving to the Son is a people who will be brought from darkness into light, from death into life, who will forever and always worship and adore and love and praise the Son. The Father says, this is my gift to you, my Son. Before anybody was anybody, before you ever gleam in your Father's eye, God made a covenant, an eternal covenant, an eternal promise. This is why there is a such thing as salvation. And everybody who is saved is part of that gift. In fact, notice how Jesus put it to his followers in John chapter 6. He said, all, every single one that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but who? But the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, we who are of the redeemed of humanity, we are that love gift. That's why the author of Hebrews could say in Hebrews chapter 12 regarding Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? When he goes through the cross, on the other side is a gift from the Father. What's the gift from the Father? The redeemed of humanity, who will worship him throughout all eternity. Is this not mind-boggling? It is. That this eternal covenant existed, and Jesus says with certainty and with assurance, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friends, we have hope. We have hope. And it is a hope that is rooted deep in the past, in the choosing of God, and friends, in the very character of God. God, who never lies, has said, I will give a gift of the redeemed to the Son. Here's the second thing I want us to see about our hope. Secondly, our hope is realized in the present. Our hope is realized in the present. You see, God is eternal. As we've mentioned, God is outside of time. He's outside of space. In fact, notice how the prophet Isaiah described the eternality of God in chapter 46. He said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. God is eternal. He has chosen yet, yet to create. He created this paradigm, this paradigm, this linear concept of time and space and matter. He created that. But even beyond that, not only did he create it, he chose to enter it. He chose to take on human flesh to be incarnated. And it's because of this we can realize hope in the present that he promises even in the now. Paul mentions four present realities, four aspects of our hope that is realized presently. First of all, he talks about the provision. The provision. He said, at the proper time manifested in his word, Christ Jesus our Savior. In these four verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul describes God as our Savior, and then he also describes Christ Jesus, our Savior. Which is it? Both. God the Father is the one who planned our salvation. God the Son is the one who procured our salvation. They are, are our Savior. In fact, in the very next chapter of Titus, verses 11 through 14, if you want to know the heart of Paul's letter to his son in the faith, Titus, it's these verses in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul explicitly describes the saving work of Christ. And we're going to come back to these two verses, or these four verses again and again. Look at verse 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, present, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is the gift of God to his son. And Jesus procured it. Jesus made the provision. The grace of God has appeared. How's the grace of God appeared? Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus lived perfectly. And Jesus died in our place. His substitutionary death. His victorious resurrection. He made the the provision for us in real time and in real space. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's the provision. That's him making provision. Jesus was incarnated. There's a phrase here in this four verses we're focusing in on that is really the heart of the chronological language that I've been talking about. Paul says, at the proper time. I mentioned that in our prayer time just a moment ago. God is never a moment too late. He's never a minute too soon. God is an on-time God at the proper time. And friends, this is such a relevant word for us today. The first week of September 2021, as we consider the loss, the tragedy, the heartache, the suffering at the proper time. God is always on time. So we think about the, the overwhelmed and overcrowded hospitals here in Chattanooga. We have hope. God's always on time. Just this morning, I read the testimony of a Christian church in Kabul, Afghanistan, moments before they were all executed. Day before yesterday, we have hope in God at the proper time. 
as we think about the aftermath of Hurricane Ida from New Orleans to New York. We see these things come across our screen and we think, God, where are you? What are you doing? And God says, I'm an on-time God. Never too early. I'm never too late. Let me show you three quick texts that bear this out. 1 Timothy chapter 2 describes the coming of Jesus to be the sacrifice for sin. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I'm sure the Hebrews who were in bondage in Babylon were saying, when is Messiah coming? We didn't come in 586 B.C. because that would have been too soon. He came in the first century A.D. because that was the proper time when God had determined. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, he describes the second coming of Jesus. Anybody want Jesus to come back soon? He's going to come back right on time. Look what he says there. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. But what about our own lives? What about the struggles and the difficulties we go through? Is God ever early? Is God ever late? Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Therefore, what do we do? Casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Friends, the provision of salvation came through Jesus Christ, and it came at just the right time. Not only do we see in the present the provision of salvation that gives us hope, but secondly, the proclamation. The proclamation. You see, this work of Jesus and what he has done, the word's got to get out. And God has determined that he's not going to get the word out through planes sky riding in the sky. He's not getting the word out through a really strategic advertising campaign. Here's how God gets the word out. Preaching. God has determined preaching is the means through which the proclamation is made. Notice what he says again, verse 3. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. It is this preaching, this caruso is the Greek word, this proclamation, this heralding of the truth that God uses, as dumb as it sounds, God uses the the craziness of preaching to bring people from death to life and to grow his people. Preaching was central to Jesus' ministry. Preaching was central to Paul's ministry. Preaching was central to the Reformation in the 1500s. And friends, preaching should be central to his church today. Would you agree with that? This is manifest in the present, the proclamation of the gospel through the preaching. But thirdly, notice in the present, this hope is realized through the profession. These professions of faith. It is this profession that defines the people who are being saved. In verse 1, Paul says he was made an apostle for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith. Key word. He refers to Titus at the, in the end of verse 4 as my true child in a common faith. Listen, faith, faith is what defines the people of God. Faith, this is our involvement. Faith is our response to the good news of who Jesus is. In fact, in the very last verse of this epistle, Paul sends a greeting to those believers in chapter 3, verse 5, 15. Greet those who love us in the 
faith. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever wondered, am I one of God's elect? Am I one of the chosen? Simple question. Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you? Are you embracing Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? Then you are. Faith is the human response of God's work in Jesus Christ. We know it is by grace, through faith, that we are saved. This is the profession. And this is what happens when? At the proper time. So when's the proper time for you you to express your faith in Jesus? Right now. (laughs) Today. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Trust in Jesus. There's a fourth reality that's realized in the present. The provision, the proclamation, the profession. Fourthly, the proof. The proof. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Living godly lives is proof of your faith. Godliness issues from the people of faith. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, there is a life in godliness that proves Christ's work in our lives. This should be a manifestation of our profession. Paul says here that the knowledge of the truth, that is, True knowledge, believing knowledge, transforming knowledge will accord with godliness. Therefore, to have someone who say they possesses faith in Jesus, professes faith in Jesus, but their life is not marked by godliness, something's out of balance here. It's like that wobbly tire you get at Walmart when you get the buggy, right? Something's not quite right here. Life is too short, by the way, to get a wobbly tire wheel at Walmart. I trade them in every time. Get another buggy. There ought to be this congruence. There ought to be this balance between what we profess and how we live our lives. Paul brings up this concept of godliness in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, in this heart of the letter I told you about. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And friends, apart from God's grace, we will all live in ungodliness. Apart from God's grace, we will all live in worldly passions. And if only we had, and this is what godliness is. Godliness is living the way God would live in our world. That's all godliness is. Godliness is living the way God would live were he in our time, in our space. And wouldn't it be awesome if we had an example of that? Wouldn't it be awesome if we had an example of God living among human beings in time and space? Oh, we do! His name's Jesus. Jesus lived in human form in time and space. And what do we know about Jesus? What do we know about the the God-man Jesus? He was godly in every way. That's why godliness also means Christ-likeness. We live like Jesus would live. And interestingly, what is clear about godliness in the book of Titus is godliness, listen, is not a withdrawal from the world. There are many Christian groups who that's what marks them. They are withdrawn from the world. They live separate from the world in such a way they don't want to become ceremonially unclean by 
interacting with the world. That's not the way Jesus lived. Living godly lives, having the gospel pulsate from our lives, means as believers, we do good works towards other people and even those who don't agree with us. We do good towards those who, who are ungodly. Just a quick flyover of this letter. We see this is what Paul is talking about. Chapter 2, verse 14. Look at this next slide. He tells them to be zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1. Be ready for every good work. Verse 8. Careful to devote themselves to good works. He says in verse 14, tell them to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Good works is a phrase that simply means living godly among the people in which we live. We do good towards them. We're zealous for them. What would it look like, again, if the people of God moved out of this mindset of me-centered, building my own kingdom, selfish, uh, hypocritical, not concerned about the needs of others to start living like this? What impact could we make for the gospel in our circles of influence? How can we do that? How can we live like this? Transform lives. I hope after 16 weeks, you know the one word. (laughs) Hope! We hope in God. We hope in eternity. We hope in the future. We hope in the consummation of God's work of redemption. And that leads to the third and final thing I'd show us. Number three, our hope is rewarded in the future. Our hope is rewarded in the future. We can live transformed lives because of this certain assurance All we see coming across our screens is not all there is. There is a God over creation who is accomplishing his purposes. Jesus can take, and he will take, all that is wrong, and he's going to make it right. Jesus will set up his kingdom. Now, what this should not motivate us to do is just to become theological eggheads. Or we just talk about all these doctrinal realities and just debate them and discuss them and pull them out of the scriptures and look at them and observe them. No, this should change the way we involve ourselves with other people's lives. Look again at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1. And keep this in mind. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Here it is. In hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This hope of eternal life, listen, it frees us to live lives of maximum impact where he's placed us. The fact that our hope is rewarded in the future, the fact that we have a certain hope of a coming Savior, means we are liberated to do good works towards those around us. And this well-founded faith goes back, as I mentioned earlier, far beyond just our own conversion experience, far beyond even the first century work of Jesus. It goes all the way back into the mind of God and the very character of God. God is a God who never lies, but his promises are true. Paul says something very similar in Colossians chapter 1. Five weeks ago, we considered this passage in depth, but I would remind you of it. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... That's our profession. And of the love that you have for all the saints, that's the proof. Here's the motivation. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
See, there is a link between our hope of eternity, our hope of Christ's return, and it freeing us to live godly lives of impact in the present age. In fact, let me show you just a couple more passages. Titus chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. This is the heart of the letter again. Paul says, we're being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for what? Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we live in the present age? Waiting, longing, anticipating, certain of the blessed hope of the return of Jesus. And finally, chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, that's our faith, that's our profession, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's the proof. Hoping in the coming kingdom, hoping in the return of Jesus is the link to living transformed lives today. I'll close with this. Those of you familiar with world history are familiar with the name Oliver Cromwell. He was the one who was the ruler of the British Empire, actually the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth in the mid-1600s when the monarchy was kind of out of order and out of fashion for a season. He was over the Commonwealth that included England, Scotland, and Ireland. During his rule, uh, it came about that there was a deficiency in silver, and they utilized silver to mint coins, and so their currency was made of silver. And so he discovered, and they found out, we don't have enough silver to continue to have currency in the system. So here's what Oliver Cromwell told his assistants. He said, go down to the cathedral and see if there's any silver there. So sure enough, they go and they look into the cathedral, and they come back and give their report, and they said, Mr. Cromwell, the only silver we found is in the statues of the saints that are tucked in the corners of the cathedral. Here's how he responded, a terse, profound word. Look at the next slide. Good. We'll melt down the saints and put them in circulation. Isn't that a great word? And I think that's a great word for the church today. Are the saints of God to be statues of silver tucked away in the cathedral? No. We're to be melted down and put into circulation. What does melted down mean? Walk in humility, brothers and sisters. Put others' needs above your own. Don't look out for your own interests, but consider others as more important than yourself. Be melted and be in circulation among the people. And may God do a work in us and through us because we have a hope in Christ. And when we live that kind of godly life, The God who never lies, the God who is true, will bring his word to pass. In fact, he put it this way through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46.10, and this is my last thought. God says, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God will do what he's going to do in his time. Let's go to him in prayer.